It is the absolute tension of parenting, of allowing them to fly. And yet your every fiber of your being, every cell within your body wants to say, stay here, you know, stay close. And and it takes, an, I think, I mean, just watching my parents and their parents as well, just a tremendous amount of courage as a parent to let go. Welcome to the Angie Creates Podcast. I'm your host, Angie Wang. In this podcast, I interview curious humans on how they become the most alive versions of themselves through creative expressions like movement, art, and writing. 欢迎来到 Angie Creates， 我是你的主持人安吉。在这个节目呢，我喜欢和来宾们聊聊关于数位游牧、写作、艺术和身体训练的不同主题，探索如何活出最精彩的人生。My guest today is Karina De Souza. Karina is a strategist, speaker, and coach focusing on Gen Z and the future of work. She's a mother of three. The youngest one just graduated from university, and the author of the book Contours of Courageous Parenting. If you listen to our previous episode, you know that I'm in a big fan of Rite of Passage. It's an online course and a community for writers and writers to be. And I knew Karina through Rite of Passage. In the course, actually, many of us call her Mother of Rite of Passage. <laughs> I remember during my first time joining the course. Every time Karina showed up on the screen, I would see comments of like Karina flooded into the chat. And very soon, I also learned why Karina is so popular in Rite of Passage. So today, I'm super excited to chat with Karina about her experiences of traveling around the world with her kids, writing a book, her parenting philosophy, and how she navigates through her career and creative projects. Welcome to the show, Karina. Thank you for having me, Angie. I'm really excited. I would actually like to start our conversation with the story of your family origin. Could you tell me where you grew up and how you ended up in North America? Sure.、Um, okay, so、um, my family background is Indian, but a specific area of India called Goa.、Uh, Goa was、uh, the Portuguese colonies within India, and they're pretty small. So most people assume that most of、uh, India was colonized by the British, but there were little pockets all across India that were colonized by other. Nations: the French, the Dutch, the uh, the um, Portuguese as well. So I'm from that little area. My family, my family name is Carnero. My married name is De Souza. I married a Goan as well.、Um, but as a little, it was such a small little area within this bigger subcontinent of of、um, India that was ruled by the British, and so there wasn't that much.、Um, Of an economy to sustain everybody living there, so a lot of Goan people would make their living by going abroad and working, and then sending money back.、Um, you see similar、um, similar pattern like in the Philippines and places like that, where there's you know people go out to other nations, and so. Um, as far back as my great great grandfather,、uh, members of my family have been traveling the world,、um, making a living. Usually, the the men of the house would be traveling, and the women and their children would stay back in Goa. So it was from that that my grandfather 
both my grandfathers, in fact, uh, but one of my grandfathers was working during the Second First World War, um, helping the British uh, army embark and disembark ships. And at the end of that time, he was asked if he'd go out to Uganda, which is in East Africa, and help manage what they were laying down the new railroads in East Africa. And so he was part of the admin that went down. He was an accountant, um, and he managed like that whole process and was part of the original government in East Africa. So as a result, my, my father was born in East Africa, and I was born in East Africa in Uganda. I think our family as uh, on both sides, my, my mother actually happens to be born in per what was then Persia, um, because her father was working for BP oil. Um, so similar, similar story. Uh, our family on both sides is right now scattered across all the continents in the world. So I've got cousins everywhere. And um, for myself, even though I was born in Uganda, um, when I was around 10, Idi Amin uh, staged a coup. That was all okay. But then he, one bright morning, he decided he was going to ask anyone of Asian origin to exit the country, gave them three months to do that. And as a result, I ended up in India for five years with my grandmother, my mother and my grandmother. And my father tried to get back to um, he was he was stuck in in England trying to figure out how to manage a family, um, how to sustain us. So five years later, he managed to get all of us out to England. So I did my high schooling and got my first job in England. And then you ask a very interesting question, Angie. How did I end up in North America? Um, I was actually planning on putting a post on that in my newsletter in one of these upcoming, maybe even today. If I've got nothing else, then I've got a half-written essay that'll finish and go out today. Um, but it actually started off as me doing interview practice. I just wanted places that I knew I could flub my interview and have no issues. And I wanted a particular, I was trying to interview for a particular place. And I didn't want to flub that interview. So my practice interviews happened to be with Wall Street firms because I never expected that I'd ever be allowed to go work in the in the US. And I had nothing to lose. And uh, obviously that helped me because I I ended up with a job in, on Wall Street and I ended up uh, coming over at the age of 24 to North America for what was a year's contract. I was a coder, worked there for like 18 years. And then after 9-11, I actually came up to Canada with my family. So this is where I am now. I remember I was reading your other article about saying goodbye to your kids when they're off to high school or college. You send him off and then you come back home, you called your mother because you realize how much grace she had for you for, to, to let you leave the country and start your new life in the States. And I was bowling so hard because I think until... Until this point, I realized, I only realized that how much grace my mother had for me too, to let me leave her and start a new life in the States. And I, I often talk about this with my friends who maybe doesn't have kids and doesn't go through like a long life journey or parenting journey like you. So knowing a mother figure like you also experienced the same thing. It's comforting, but also heartbreaking at the same time. <laughs> it is. It is incredibly it 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 um it is the absolute tension of parenting to allow someone in your care you know i think both of us are going to end up with a box of tissues by our side today crying <laughs> i know i'm but already like tearing up <laughs> um it is the absolute tension um of allowing them to fly and yet 
your every fiber of your being, every cell within your body wants to say, stay here, you know, stay close. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it takes, an, I think, I mean, just watching my parents and their parents as well, just a tremendous amount of courage as a parent to let go. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I, I, I think for me, that is the growing up. I am now growing up. The growing up is letting my children go. It wasn't like me going mm-hmm. somewhere. It was having that that ability to let my children go. So I want to talk about September 11. Could you tell me where you were in your career when September 11 happened? And how did it impact your family? Okay. Uh, well, obviously, huge pivot point in our family. Um, the day itself... Uh, uh, it was the first day of kindergarten for my daughter. And as, as a result, I didn't go into work that day. I was working from home. Um, uh, my sister happens to live right across the river from the World Trade Center. And so as I got home from, you know, my I've got all these photographs of my daughter's first day at school. Um, and I pick up the phone and my sister says, Karina, it's the weirdest thing. There's a plane sticking out the World Trade Center. And um, I turned on the TV and I looked at it and it literally looked like a biplane given the scale of the World Trade Center. So um, I was really fortunate because my my normal commute would have had me coming into the World Trade Center at 8.52 or around 8.50, 8.52 is when my path train usually used to come into the World Trade Center. That was my commute. I'd come into the World Trade Center, then take a subway down to Brooklyn. And my view out of my office window was the World Trade Center. Uh, I was working for Morgan Stanley at the time um, in the IT department. Um, I, I was doing a lot of strategy. I just come off a huge project. This is right after Y2K. I just come off a, a project that also involved, like you know, what happens if Y2K succeeds? What happens if Y2K falls? Fails? Um, so I'd been doing a lot of strategy, a lot of scenario planning, uh, and I had those skills under my belt. But this this was not something that you know anyone had ever forecast. It's this. Oh, you asked me a couple of different questions. What was 9-11? Where was I in my career? Um, (laughs) The day and the weeks after were wrenching. Wrenching for me because the World Trade Center was the first place I'd ever ever stepped into when I first went on that one-year contract uh, to New York. And so there was that emotional and that physical, geographical landmark, you know, so that, that suddenly disappearing from sight, it left a huge hole in, in the la- in the cityscape of Manhattan that I was so familiar with. I mean, I'd, I'd be taking a train down on the New Jersey side, and then I, on my flip side, you know, that was my, that was my view. And so suddenly there was this huge space in, in the air. Um, my commute itself, I, uh, over time, like it's it, the one big way it changed, like I just, I was now the mother of three kids, but it extended my commute by at least an hour each way. So that was huge. Um, and once they finally opened a little bit of the commute in, I would actually be taking the ferry into the World Trade Center area and then walking down towards uh, Battery um, Point and catching the subway there. And that took me through all the trucks that were taking debris away from the World Trade Center. But you knew that the reason they were taking that debris away was because they were also analyzing for all the people that were lost. And it was just soul-sucking. It was... <sighs> 
I mean, I knew a couple of people who passed away in the World Trade Center. It's just, it just, you know, you, you, I, I can't put a, I can't put. Yeah, that's as much as I want to say. I think on camera about it because it, it's still a very raw feeling to this day, um, very emotional. Um, and then at, towards the end of two thousand and two, Morgan Stanley was one of the many companies in the area that uh, was suffering from the nine eleven fallout, if you like, the financial fallout. And so I was part of a huge, um, probably one of the biggest uh, layoffs that Morgan Stanley did. And here I was suddenly, you know, everyone I knew was a Morgan Stanley person. Uh, this was my entire social circle, my entire work circle. And I was kind of left adrift. Um, and I started looking for other jobs in, uh, in the US. But I'd also been exposed to all these wonderful tools um, that Morgan Stanley was using to do planning like five, 15, 30 years in the future. And suddenly it occurred to me, wait a second, you know, why don't I use these tools for us, for our family, like for the decisions we have to make? And um, I started playing with them. And one of them, I think I shared in the book that I'd written, was this timeline. I just basically created this grid and said, you know, for each of my children, what age they were now and what age they would be on, you know, in specific years in the future, where they would be, like, what, where would they be in that stage of life? Would they be in high school? Would they be in university? And I also did this for my parents and for other members of our family. And I suddenly realized that we actually had an opportunity. We'd like, it, it, my, my children at that point were three, yeah, three, five, and seven, I'd say, or, you know, just about three, five, and no, two, five, two, four, and six when I was doing this planning. And so as I started planning it out, I suddenly realized, you know, my husband, it always, my husband's Canadian. We always had planned to move our family back to Canada. And so the question that went through my head was, is this the point at which we do it? Or do I reestablish myself in another organization and then move us again? And at that point, who does it wrench? Does it like, you know, now is it taking a kid who's going into high school and moving it away, moving him away from his friend circle? It's like, or is this a good point? And so we used that little tool to kind of make that determination, realize that we literally had latched into a perfect window. Our kids at the time we did the trip were four, six, and eight. Um, it was at a point where, yes, they had established like friend groups, but they were also young enough to reestablish friend groups in a different country. And coming back into Canada, they had the opportunity to mix with their cousins here, who a few years later would all be in university and they wouldn't have that close kinship that they now share. And so it just worked out that it was a good moment to try this out. You know, so I used that tool and that's how we made the decision that this was the point at which we would um, move up to Canada. Mm -hmm. The book Karina mentioned is Contours of Courageous Parenting. And um, you ended up traveling to 16 countries with your kids. How did you make the decisions on going on a trip? And what were your kids' reaction to it? Well, the way we made the decision was we'd made this, we'd now made this decision to move up to Canada. And uh, at that point, none of my children had ever been back to India. And so my thought process was, we're going up to Canada, not, you know, neither of us have guaranteed jobs. My husband had a job offer from Mercedes um, as a potential. Um, 
But it's like, you know, we don't quite know when we're going to be able to travel freely again, you know, just like, you know, have the luxury of travel. And I wanted my children to experience Christmas in India, in Goa, where I grew up. And so it started with that. It started with, oh, let's just go to Goa for Christmas. And then I started, you know, I think you're catching the drift that I like planning these things out a little bit, not too, not too tightly, but a little bit. And so I started mapping out, okay, if we go to Goa, you know, and it, we have to be there for Christmas, obviously. So, you know, let's say we get there for the 15th and we leave and come back on the 5th of January. And we started pricing it out and it had quite a big number because now it's five people flying, not just, you know, myself or myself and my husband. And um, then I was like, wait a second, my children are so young. Does it matter if I throw another two weeks on either side and just like extend that a little bit, allowing me not to be in the high season for flight travel, but in the shoulder season? And so that's literally how this started. It was like, all right, let's throw an extra week here, an extra week there. And my husband had uh, trekked in Nepal before then. He goes, well, you know, if we are in India, why don't we also add Nepal? So it started off, okay, let's add Nepal to that trip. And... Um, and then we're like, wait a second, if we're moving all the way up to Canada, do we literally have to be there in December? I mean, we'll have started school in September, then we take them out of school, and now we're out for December and January. Maybe we don't put them in school in September. Maybe we use the, the months before that. And that's, that was the genesis of it. And, and it was about having them meet people in our lives that mattered to us. And, having, and then the other part was having them experience places that when they were older, the age they are now, even if they had access to all the money in the world, those places may not exist. And so those were two key drivers uh, for us designing this trip. Um, we targeted every place that we had family. So a lot of the trip was friends and family. We stayed with family. Um, there were two huge anchor points. Uh, so we did four months in Goa in the end and two months in England, in, in my home in London. And so that allowed my children to meet my side. And so I grew up in, as, as I've told you, in India and in England. And so they met my friends, my, you know, my relatives um, all across the other parts of the world. Um both my husband and I were born in East Africa. So East Africa became some place that we wanted them to visit and meet family there. And so whilst we were there, we threw in a safari as well. So we just basically started creating this little map of things that were of interest to us and people we wanted them to meet. And then we worked with a really good travel agent who happened to have young children himself. And the 16 countries actually was really interesting because, you know, let's say our first stop was Thailand. He basically had us stop over in Vancouver, where we have family, stop over in Hong Kong, and then, you know, get into Thailand. So it was, the flight was actually New York to Thailand with stopovers in, you know, Vancouver and, and Hong Kong. And we did similar things. And that's how we ended up with 16 countries. It was not all of them were the, the key points. They were actually like sub-destinations for many reasons. Like the Hong Kong one was to allow us to make the time change because it's such a dramatic time change. So having four days in a, in a, like a halfway point allows you to transition your body clock. So we did a lot of that as well. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a time where Facebook doesn't even didn't even exist yet. Yeah, Facebook. The internet. Thank God, the internet had just come on board. A good, so, to to place everybody else's perspective, Gmail had literally launched that year. Without Gmail, I don't think we could have done this trip because we paid all our bills online. 
um, you know, and, and managed our accounts and managed our cell phone, um, all that kind of stuff via like these new, like these new ideas that were out there. Um, but yes, all the research that I did was your good old fashioned li library books. I created Excel spreadsheets to say, okay, what's the average temperature? Lonely planet is it? Lonely <laughs> planet. Because one of the things I realized is, you know, here we are with three young children. Um, the oldest one was eight, and then was a six year old and a, and a four year old. Well, you'll soon realize that you know most four year olds don't have a lot of walking power in them. So I just came up with these thoughts, and we actually tested it in the year before we we launched on the trip. But it was like I realized that there's only so much my four-year-old could walk and my six-year-old could walk. Um, and, you know, coming off a plane, usually they're tired, so you have to carry them. So the packing was, we can't carry two suitcases per person. Um, my husband and myself each should be able to carry one child. And there can only be so many uh, roll-ons. And everything had to fit in one car because our we had Japan and China on our list as well originally. And not understanding the language, I never wanted us to just be split over two caps. So that kind of predetermined how much we could pack and therefore the countries that we could travel to because it said, okay, these are the amount of layers I could have in there, um, you know, in order to be either if we're dealing with cold countries or um, so, you know, you couldn't take too many layers with you because that would just expand the amount of packing that you had to deal with. So a whole bunch of, yeah, it, it became a logistics a huge logistics experiment. <laughs> In hindsight, I'm very proud of it. It's, it's something that you should be very proud. It's a, cra it's a crazy experiment at that era with three kids. Before this, have they met your family on the other side of the globe yet? Uh, yes. So we had my family in London, they'd met a fair number of times. Like I'd try and go back, you know, once a year or so. So they'd met my, mm -hmm. my parents, my siblings, obviously. Um, but, you know, we have family out in Australia, um, you know, uh, in like all parts, like Dar es Salaam and, and Kenya and places like that. And they hadn't met them. So, yeah, for me, we are taking Michelle back to Taiwan. Because we, Paul and I both have only one grandparent left. And so I really want Michelle to meet my side of family and my grandfather. And fortunately, she's in an age that she doesn't have any friends yet. <laughs> so we are free to give, to um, take her around. When you told your kids about the ideas of traveling around the world, what were their reactions? Um, for them, it wasn't so much the travel around the world. It was more the fact that we were leaving and going to another country. I think that was the biggest one. The three-year-old at that point didn't really have any reference points, so he was quite excited. To him, he was just going to see his cousins more, you know, um, and that's the way we pitch it. But my daughter, I remember her just literally bawling, saying, you're taking me away from every friend I've ever known. I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> you're four years old. <laughs> Very, quite drama queen. <laughs> but um, yeah, she settled okay. What are what were the things that surprised you on the trip? Oh gosh. I think the first thing that I had to learn to do was give up control. And uh, that came to me in various ways. But, you know, having worked in IT at like one of the biggest banks on Wall Street, you know, you, you kind of pride yourself on being, you know, being organized, having structure, having dates in mind. And um 
I think anyone who travels, I think one of the first things you have to learn is is just to go with the flow, to have parameters that you set for yourself um, within after which you can afford to get a little bit upset, but within those bounds, you know, just expand that that those bounds within which you're willing to be more flexible. Um, so just learning to to let go, learning to be able to replan, always having a plan B in place. And these are actually probably basic parenting tips anyway, right? Um, because it doesn't, you don't need to be able to travel to do these things. Uh, but for instance, when we were in the middle of our trip, the Maldives was on our list of places to go to. But the um, the tsunami happened that year. And suddenly, uh, that was not a viable option for us. Um, so that was, a, and it still remains on my list. I still have not been to the Maldives. Um, there are just big things that happen in the world and you have no control over them. 9-11 obviously was one of them. Um, but it, so, so just learning how you incorporate life's happenings and still find a way forward. And I think that was one of the, the having learned scenario planning for me, that was a huge tool. Uh, the, this idea that you watch for signals and you always have a plan in place no matter which way life takes you. Uh, to me, that's incredibly freeing. And so, and th that was powerful. That was that was a way, that's the way we managed. And, you know, I, and it, I think this is a gen general parenting guideline. It's like all of these things are, you can only do the best you can do. And once you've made that decision and stuck with that decision, you can always go back and look and say, you know, I could have done this differently. But the fact remains is this is what you did. And from that point, you move forward, right? You can't, you can't go back and rewrite time. So, when you made a decision of going on a trip, how did your other family member thought about this decision? <laughs> well, uh, we had the Barrier Reef, we had Safari, we had climbing the Himalayas as part of our trip, and both sets of grandparents were quite. They had a lot of cautious, caution thrown at us. It's like, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Can you manage three kids? How are you going to manage a year away? You know, it's like, so the, there was, the, there was um, that's really funny that you asked that now, because uh, we were just having a discussion with our youngest at the dinner table day before yesterday. And he said exactly the same thing. He says, every time I say something, you, you, you are very supportive. But the first thing that comes out of your mouth is all the caution <laughs> and has as I'm saying this to you, I realize where I get that from. <laughs> it obviously runs true to uh, historic track. I've got to, I've got to bear that in mind. Um, but yes, uh, they were full of. They were, they were supportive, but they were very worried for us. So, how do you think about education for people who are on a default path, taking kids out of the linear education path? is dangerous and not good for them. And I think for me, before my, my daughter was born, I was like, I'm going to be the homeschooling mom. And um, my kid is going to be so special. She's going to make every decision that is different from other people. But now, like, really seeing her interacting with other babies and then really think about when all the other moms that talk about daycare, preschool, where to send them when they are a little bit older, I started to feel like I... I'm getting very, very risk-averse. So how do you, yeah, how do you think about this? Okay. Um, so as you know, I wear a couple of different hats. One of my other one is future of work. 
So I can answer this question on various levels. Um, how do I want to frame this question? So first start, I'm the daughter of a school principal. So education has always been very important. I'm also from what was called a developing nation and education is a way to move forward, right? So we've got those as really solid um, themes that run through our families. Um, so people have valued education very highly. Uh, if you want to think about it, a, a degree travels with you even when you have no money. And I saw that when coming out of Uganda, when everything else was taken from us, the fact that my father had a degree, the, fa the fact that, you know, he, he couldn't show his experience, but he could show his degree, right? So there were those kinds of benefits to having education. It, um, it allows you to move to a different country and start at a certain level. It shows tenacity, it shows learning, and that is the, a formal degree. Um, but on the other side, you know, we all come from years and, and centuries of people who didn't go to high school, didn't get PhDs, and yet they survived. They made huge decisions. They have moved countries and cultures forward. And for that, you kind of know that you don't have to have gone to Oxford or Cambridge in, in order to get that. So you've got, in my head, I've, you know, I always try and balance between the two. Um, for my own children, that one year was quite interesting because, uh, you know, when I put out that little grid that I'd been talking about earlier on, my uh, oldest child was going into third grade. My middle child was going into first grade. And my uh, youngest would have just been starting kindergarten. And now I'm a math and uh, computer science grad. And I'm like, if I cannot teach my third grader multiplication and division, I do not deserve my degree. So I kind of knew that I had everything I needed to be able to handle a one-year curriculum for my third grader. I mean, I think every, many parents have that, obviously, you know, should have, should have that level of, um, they should feel confident being able to guide a young child uh, through a lot of that curriculum. And I studied the curriculum actually in, in both the US and, and Canada, just to make sure I had all the elements in place. And so as we went along, we actually crafted um, a lot of the curriculum to make sure we got things covered. And we taught him elements along the way. So, for instance, in math, one of the things in third grade that you learn is estimation. Another one you do is multiplication. Another one is understanding time. And we actually did practical applications for each of these for him for that year. So we, and the younger ones, we did like, you know, we did mental math on the beach. You know, I'd scribble um, uh, sums on the beach and I'd say, you know, I'd say, hurry up before the wave comes, you know. And, and they really scurry, poor kids, <laughs> realizing that it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just write more, you know, more sums in five minutes if the if the the wave came in and hit them up. So th this is how they like. So I basically I took elements of things that they would have done in school and I kind of incorporated them into the regular um, activities we were doing uh, during that year. But one piece of learning I got out of it, uh, especially with my older child, like he and I would tussle. Com continuously just to get him to sit down and focus and even write a journal. And I realized that each of us has different learning styles and his was a peer learning style. So he actually 
thrives when he's around other people. He's naturally extroverted, but his learning, he actually learns from asking questions. And so just having his mom and him being the, you know, the single threaded communication um, for learning wasn't, was not helping him. It worked for my daughter, but it did not work for him. And so that was hugely beneficial to me once I got him back in school in a, you know, in a regular setup. But it was also really interesting for when he went looking for universities because we used that information to pick universities that would position him where he enjoyed being in the classroom, where the style of the lectures suited his personality. And so when we did our university tours, that was a key part of what we were looking for. So this like, so that little learning that we did on this trip literally rippled through um, and came back to help us in the future. So I guess all that to say, there are different ways to learn. Education itself is changing. There is, uh, you know, and this is my, now my future of edu- uh, my future of uh, work hat. Um, the way we interpret education, the way we fund universities, all that I believe is going to change dramatically. How we value information now that we have access to the internet, where we are not obliged to remember data points. All that's going to change and change the way we design curriculum. So I see a lot of changes coming down in the way education is going to be transmitted. And we're just at that. We happen to be in those this five, five to 15 years where that's happening. So I'd say being flexible is a key part of, of education from a parenting side. Um, watching for what your child is getting and what they are missing so, uh, you know, your child might be really good at reading, but struggles with math. Well, then maybe school is the right place for them for math, but you kind of make sure that they get to the library and have an extra stack of books for reading. So you're kind of balancing out what, you know, what they can get from school with what they just just love at, at home and augmenting that. So that is a structure I used a lot. I, I did a lot of extracurriculars to kind of support them where they needed more stimulation. And I kept watching for things that they needed help with in the traditional school structure. But I did not rely 100% on the school structure. If that's, And I think I'd like to end with like this little segment with that, which is, I think as a parent, I always felt like I was the one responsible for the education not the teachers. And I I kind of oversaw everything that was happening. The teachers provided one component, my child comp- provided one component, and I provided another component. And together, we created the education for this child. Do you think that traveling with them actually give you a chance of being very close up to their learning styles? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think just travel in general, and it does not have to be a year. It can be like, you know, three three weeks. Um, I'd say longer than a week, because I think everyone needs a week just to come off whatever pattern they're in. So I'd always recommend like something a little bit longer than a week. Um, but yes, it, it gave me a window into how each of them operates. It also created a better, mm-hmm. I'm hoping, a better bond between them and uh, like our kids and and the parents um and a better communication structure um it, yeah it just taught me how they learn like each child i discovered on that trip you know has different capacity um and a different style of learning and is interested in different things you know like all these all these are discoveries that i think when you if we had taken that same year and been working and had them in school 
I would have gotten 20 minute pockets in a day. But here I was with them 24 hours in the day, you know, a couple of months in a row. And so you are able to see that. And I, I, I'm going to guess that a lot of parents who had to raise their kids during COVID also got that. They, they, they got to watch from the sidelines. And it's a very different experience than just picking them up at school and then saying, okay, sit down, do your homework and being in different rooms and stuff like that. I think it's a different experience. I'm curious, after this trip, have you thought about just doing homeschooling instead of sending them back to the education system? Um, yes, but like I said, once I realized the learning styles, I recognized that um, I probably wasn't the best. My personality, for one, wouldn't lend to raising three kids and homeschooling them. Each of them had a very different capacity, so it would probably take my entire day homeschooling um, the three different children in three different grades. Uh, so for me, and also I think my interests are different. You know, we were running a business when we came here. So that also took a lot of our energy, a lot of our energy, in fact. Um, and so for many different reasons, it just worked to have them back in the school system. And I uh, honestly, I think it wasn't as big a part of my plan and maybe that's why it wasn't something I looked at seriously. I always looked at mm -hmm. myself as augmenting what the, the school system could provide. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, they were in French immersion here. And, you know, that's something I couldn't have done for them. So, so it's been maybe more than 20 years after the trip. And you started to see the ripple effect of the trip. Could you share more about this? Um, so, and I think you, one of the questions you were, you were saying is like, how did I end up writing a book? My husband has been asking me to write. And so I think, uh, so we traveled in 2004 to 2005, but the planning obviously started in 2003. So this year is 20 years that we've been planning this trip. Um, I blogged it. I, so I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned coder. I, I literally hard-coded hard HTML blog, um, blogged the trip so that all their friends could see us as we traveled for that year. So it was a way of them staying in touch with their friends in school. Um, and other families staying in touch with us. So I'd done that. I, you know, I have a journal. And I said to my husband, and my husband said, you know, but I always wanted you to write a book. And so um, during COVID, there was an opportunity for me to hang out with a bunch of my friends who I podcast with and, um, and write. And we decided that that's what I'd write. I'd write about the, this trip rather than writing about what I, you know, my, my work, which is future of work. And so that became, an, it was such a lovely moment because all the three kids were home. So we'd actually sit at the dinner table and reminisce. And so it it became a really wonderful, like a, like a wave, you know, like a ripple back. Um, uh, like we, we'd be saying, okay, I'm writing about this today. And what do you remember about it? And just collecting their grown up version of their three-year-old memories, you know, and, and to me, that was exciting. Um, and so essentially what, where I am right now, because I'm pulling together the final version of the book, is not talking about how the trip went as it went day by day. Um, because I think there are a lot of parents out there now who are taking their kids around the world and they have access to all these really fancy tools and Instagram and, you know, they're, they're essentially blogging their lives as they go along. And I can't compete with that. I can't compete with their cameras and their photography or anything like that. But what I thought might be of value is to talk about, you know, 
almost 20 years later, what has been one of the effects or a couple of the effects of having made this decision? Um, and also like, you know, how else could you make a similar decision without having done what we did? And um, and so that's what I'm writing right now. I'm writing a, what I'm calling ripples and just going through um, and analyzing, you know, I got, my three kids are now graduated. How did it affect their sense of travel, their sense of the world, their worldview, their world, their sense of themselves. Um, my son said something really interesting the other day. He said, you know, most other kids, even those who come into university have gone to other places. He says, but that trip, and I said, you were only four. How did it affect you? He goes, I always felt like I was part of a global, a sphere world. And he says, you know, I could see myself having lived in each of these countries. You know, I, it wasn't like I'd visited and come back. It was always like I knew that there were people growing up, still living their lives, you know, people I know in these various places. And it completely changes the way he interacts with the world on a daily basis. Um, and that was a four-year-old and the eight-year-old. I mean, like he he does like 100-day solo treks down South America and stuff like that. So they, they, they're... they're Appetite for travel has changed a lot. Um, another big thing for me, I think, is just watching the way they take on risk. They are, I'd say, each of them has surprised me. <laughs> you know, going back to that question about like how I, how my parents approached us, is like they take on a lot of risk, but it's assessed risk. Like they will go through and 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 knowingly walk into a situation saying, okay, I'm willing to take on this level of risk. If it gets to this point, then I, I will take a different path out. So I, I see them taking chances that a lot of other people may have not stepped into. And so those are, those are just a few of many different ripples. Um, the biggest one for me has actually just been the connection to our family. You know, they are even now in Goa, like, you know, um, Whenever I go back, which hasn't been that often since, but you know, three or four times, and every time my other family members go back, people in the village are constantly asking after my children. My children have a place, you know. They 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 are known, and like people are following their their, you know, their careers and stuff like that. And so that to me gives you know that sense of belonging is something that I can you know is fabulous and, and something I wanted for my children. So there are a bunch of ripples. I mean, I, I think I've come up right now, my list is 13 and I'm trying to cut it back to seven just because I don't think, I think that'll be too big a book <laughs> to have 13 different ripples. Food, huge one. <laughs> just the way they, they interact with food from different cultures, uh -huh. you know. I think um, uh, their careers, you know, just the, like my youngest guy has gone into environmental engineering um, just the way they approach different parts of life, I see um, connections back to that trip. But it could be it could be that and so much more, right? So I'm not saying that is the only way to do this. I think as parents, if you're able to offer your children that open mindedness, that in itself is is um, is where it starts. It doesn't you don't physically have to go somewhere else. You share a fascinating story before about your son kicking a ball with the local kids. Could you share more about that story? I think for me, humility is the thing I learned from that. So just to give you the backstory, um, 
as I said before, my husband had gone through the Himalayas uh, when he was much younger, like before we got married, before we met, before we got married. And so, um, you know, our kids had been raised in in the um, metropolitan area. So it's like in New Jersey, but, you know, Jersey, Manhattan. And that's what they knew. That That is the universe they knew. Um and there are many reasons why we we started this trip, um, but we also wa- we wanted to make sure that they understood the privilege that they had, the you know everything from the money, the access to education, and everything. And so we um, incorporated in our trip little places where we could visit to blend just you know how the world lives, how people get joy out of simple things. As well as, you know, like I was saying before, um, you know, taking them to places which are difficult to access, which might not exist when they are old enough to travel themselves. And so Nepal was one of these places. We picked the Annapurna range because it was more accessible than, you know, the the uh, Mount Everest route. Um, and uh, very wisely, my husband uh, asked for extra um, helpers and they would actually carry the uh, the younger two on their shoulders. So instead of carrying backpacks, which were typically three times the weight of my children, <laughs> they actually enjoyed um, traveling with a young family because you know between we had a, in the end we were a group of about uh, one two three four so about um, nine of us together. So between you know mother father three kids and and the helpers and the guides um, and so we just circled the kids you know like everyone took turns carrying the kids on their backs or their shoulders or whatever and so it was just a little entourage that went through um and uh as we were climbing there was one day where we climbed these 3000 steps to get from the valley level to higher up on the mountain and then we still had another 5 hours walk to where we were uh the village we were going to be staying in and so halfway through the evening and i i had i'd had i'd torn my meniscus before i did the trip and so i was kind of really walking really slowly um and we decided we were going to getting a, a donkey and uh so just to give us a little bit of oomph for about an hour or so of support the donkey did not like my weight or I didn't like the fact that I was going to tip over one side. So we just, every member of the family took turns getting on the donkey. And when my youngest son finally got on, the donkey said enough and bucked. And so he got thrown off and we thought he'd broken his arm, but it turns out he just sprained it. So as a result, we stayed over an extra night at this tea house in Gorapani. And um, they didn't expect us, to, like typically people come in, stay the night, have breakfast, start the trek and go off to the next village. So now, you know, they're hosting a family with five, three kids. But it turns out they had a little four-year-old their own called um, Ocean. And that always fascinated me that parents living in the heights of the Himalayas would call their child Ocean. Um, but anyway, Ocean, you know, couldn't speak English. My kids couldn't speak Hindi or Nepalese. And yet they all started playing a game and and were uh, hanging out with each other, uh, essentially football or soccer. Um, anyway, we get back down. We've done a bunch of different things in this five days. And I said to my son, okay, now just pull out your journal and start writing about what you've seen because I don't want you to lose these memories. And to me, it was so important that he captures this memory, this, this very special moment. He's an eight-year-old, right? And he and I went into a huge fight. It literally took three hours. And at the end, um, I left. I was really despondent because I thought he's, that's it. You know, he's not remembered this thing at all. And then you talk about this red ball. Well, seven years later, he was, you know, t- towards the end of his high school um, years. And he was 
he decided to create an extracurricular club at his school called Right to Right Right to Play. It's part of a bigger organization that's run uh, by an Olympics. It was um, created by uh, Olympians, and they bring games to war-torn countries for the children because they believe that you know once war tears apart in a, a country, especially when it's tribal. The children tend to be very withdrawn, and you got to bring back this sense of openness of play, just to start regenerating the the uh, the culture. And their symbol is a red ball. Anyway, so when he picked that, and I'm like, you know, why did you pick that? And he goes, Do you remember that red ball that we used to play with our ocean? And I'm thinking to myself. Here I was worried about all his memories and the things he had forgotten, you know, uh, on this, this trip into the Himalayas. And he remembered something that wasn't even on my radar. And that to me, I would cry, was the biggest lesson in parenting. Like it was, you, I, cannot, I cannot predefine what will be important in a child's memory, you know, what will be impactful. Seven years later, he had remembered that it literally was not one of my, you know, I have a best of each country folder. It wasn't in that folder. It was, you know, just something that he had in his mental um, uh, store, his mental photo album of what was important on that trip. Um, yeah, it just blows me away, still blows me away that, that he did that. I'm crying, sorry. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very, very beautiful story. It, it literally taught me a big lesson that, you know, I can, I can, I can offer them opportunities, but I should not decide ahead of time what they will take away from it. All I can do is expose them and then allow them to take away what is important to them. That's something that I am learning, even though my daughter is only in this world for three months. And I remember like every time I wanted to take her to places, they're like beautiful, maybe outside going on a trail or we go to this kite festival and then she was slept through the whole way. Of course, she's a tiny baby, but I would be so upset. I was like, come on, Michelle, we took you out. How come you're not awake? And this is so much demand for a three months old. But I'm trying to like, trying to accept the fact that it will be a long journey and no matter what, how much I want to do for her in my own term or want her to experience the world in my own term she already come with a filter like the shape of her being she's the one who is going to decide what is magical for her and what is not important for her oh <laughs> three months old <laughs> so you're your youngest one just recently graduated from Harvard University, and you wrote a very moving piece about it. You shared before that he was also on a semi-pathless path. He studied environmental engineering, going to work at McKinsey, but also is a successful DJ. Could you share how you give your children the freedom to make decisions and trust their own instincts? Uh, first, I'll say I do it badly. Um... I am, I, I think, and I, I'll say, uh, I, I have to give credit to a lot of rite of passage people, uh, like Alexandra Allen and Megan Goring and people like that, who encouraged me to write about this, because what I write about is the struggle that I continue to have. And so the struggle I continue to have is the logical part of me knows where the world is going. 
but the emotional part of me still mothers as I was parented. You know, I still parent as I was parented. And so I'm constantly caught in that tension. I'm constantly caught in that that contradiction. Um, so I'll be totally upfront. I was the last person he told in the family that he was planning on um, putting in a lot more musical um, options in his last year of, of university. And when he, and my first thing was, but, and, you know, we, we each have different reasons why we, we have our, um, our positions. So my, my logic, logical head is you've taken environmental engineering. Unfortunately, the world is in a really tough spot. Fortunately for you, that means job security for the next 30 years. At least that's the logical part of me. And, you know, you're going to have people asking you to come work for them. Whereas as a musician, you're the one who's going to have to go out seeking work. So to me, it's about the pipeline, right? Um, but that being said, he's also incredibly creative. I'm astounded. I mean, like these discussions were happening in 2020, December 2021 20, uh, and, and uh, January 2022. Um, so it's only been a year that he's actually been uh DJing full-time, uh, not, sorry, not full-time, uh, taking on DJing and stuff like that. And so I was thrilled. Like he, he's DJed some pretty major events down in, um, uh, in Boston. Um, and he's created that, that success for himself. He's, he's been very thoughtful, very, um, targeted about how he's gone about, um, accessing, the range of music, the audience, you know, all those kinds of things. So I'm really proud of him. And I think walking away, f so the difference between me as a parent in January 2022 and me as a parent in in June of 2023 is the, the 2022 parents said, you can't do that. You know, it's like you've, you've, you're on a path to do environmental engineering and excuse me, the world needs it. So that's that's actually one that that's from a different part of my life says, I'm sorry, we can't afford to have less environmental engineers and more DJs. We need environmental engineers. So there's that part of me that is just morally, you know, held my ground on that one. Um, but on the flip side, I look at him and I say, this is a person who's who's stepped into a new learning path. He's he's taught himself a whole range of tools and and expanded his his um access to people, his research stuff. So if I was McKinsey or if I was any other potential employer, and I look at this person and I say, okay, yes, you you had this structured way of learning for so long in terms of environment environmental engineering. But now I see what you have done as an individual. You've shown me that you have the capacity to bring in a new skill set to position yourself so you can succeed at it. To me, that is also a success. So I've translated in my head that he's been successful at both. I don't know if that kind of answers your question. But it, you know, once again, when I wrote that essay that I did write, it was, um, it's, you know, Karina D'Souza, Bachelor of Parenting is the title of it. It was more about what I've learned as a parent in this journey, because, you know, with him graduating um, his undergrad, it's kind of like a milestone in our moment of parenting. And so I felt like that that was my undergrad degrees that I was I was walking away with. Um, and I think humility, humility is one of the huge things I've learned as a parent um, in this journey is just, you can only do so much. And after that, you really have to trust that you've given your child sufficient support, good 
frameworks. And then you just got to trust that they're going to do with it what they feel is right in the moment. And I'd say, you know, you asked the question, how do I give them, uh, what was your phrasing? How do I give them freedom to make decisions? I think the phrasing I, I offer them is, I'd rather you made a decision and failed at it than were fearful about taking it. So in order to move ahead, you have to have done more stuff. And if you're going to do more stuff, your chances of failing exist. There is no one who is 100% successful at everything that they do. So to me, taking chances comes with a, with a component of risk, and I'm okay with that. So long as it's educated risk, it's something that you've assessed ahead of time, you haven't gone to it blindly, you're somewhat prepared, and you have a sense of the signals that say, okay, if this happens, I'm exiting. And if this happens, I'm exiting this way. You know, if you've got those components, and I think that's what we've taught them, then uh, go ahead, take some chances. And especially when you're younger um, and there are less people reliant on you. They, and they have watched, I think that's one place where they've watched us take chances in our lives, both parents. And, um, you know, some of them have failed miserably, but some of them have come through. What advice would you give to parents like me who wants to give freedom to their kids to choose their own path, but are afraid of the unknown of deviating from the default path? Okay. First piece of advice I'm going to give you is the default path is not going to be the right path by the time your child is 50. The world is going to change mm -hmm. dramatically over the next 50 years. So the map is getting scrapped. So we all know the industrial era is kind of at its in its dying days where if you want to think of like the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is gone, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like that. Um, and a key defining moment of this, like I talk about transitions when I talk about future of work. It is the the tool set that you need to survive in these next 50 years is how do you manage when you have two coexisting empires at the same time? You have to continue to do some things in the old way and you have to learn how to do things in the new way. And so just understanding that we're never going to have a solid steady state for the next 50 years is part of, of what I would try and educate my children in. But that is not really good for a child. A child needs structure. And so what I realized is that that structure had to come from us parents. That structure had to come from things that do not change over time. And when I looked at that and I was assessing it for my own children, for me, that structure came from lessons I'd learned from my parents, from my grandparents, from my great-grandparents. A lot of people call them soft skills. I actually call them heirloom skills. So these are the skills that allowed my great-grandparents to go to different countries, to make a living in different countries. They did not have high school degrees. They did not have PhDs. And so I look at that and say, okay, what component of that that will not change when there is no AI and AI has evolved into something even bigger? Like, what is it that I can, I can offer? Because we're going through really... Um, dramatic times coming up. So you need a deep anchor. So my anchors are like the critical thinking skills, communication skills, um, understanding that, you know, families have been through this before and that they've come out the other side. So all those are what I'm beginning to call heirloom skills. Many people, like I say, refer to them as the EQ skills. Um, but those are the things that are persistent. 
So all the other stuff is going to be changing rapidly, but the persistent skills, the heirloom skills are going to be there. And so I feel like that is a stabilizer for my child. That is a framework that they can keep and they can give their children, right? So it's like the things that are not going to change. What can my children give their children can give their children after that? And and uh, so they do need structure. Like everyone, I, very often people say, how do you think outside the box? And I keep saying, they have to understand what's in the box before they can think outside the box. Well, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the box. What is the framework that they need to work with? Um, another key thing I would, so I was thinking about this the other day when you'd actually asked me that question. Um, is the ability to make friends or or not the ability, but I think one of the biggest gifts I gave my children or I was able to give my children was putting them even at the beginning in the middle of good people so that the friend groups that they got themselves attracted to were people who were intelligent, who were testing, who um, could could debate effectively, supported each other. And um, when you think about it, as they grow up, you are less and less in the picture. So I am very proud that so far, every time, I'm happy to have my children's friends at my dinner table. They are people that I look at and I say, okay, that's a good person. I'm glad that they are there having your back. I'm glad that they're supporting you. I can see like with mental health crisis and stuff like that, I can see them watching out for each other. You know, and so the ability which starts even in when they're three and four years old to select people that they feel confident with and comfortable with, not people who are um, negative influences on their character, right? Because once they do that, they then start selecting that same kind of person in school. And if you're in a traditional school system, that person is probably going to stay with you for 12 years of schooling. And then when you go into university, you're going to probably look for that kind of person again to be around you in university who's going to support you for the next four years. So the the ability to teach your children or to, to help arrange their friend group, not to be your friend group, but to be people who do not cut them down so that they learn how to create their own friends. I think that's key. Um, another thing I think that my kids... I, I look at in hindsight and I think was really powerful was that they advocate for themselves. Um, like I said, I'm the daughter of a school principal and I grew up in an era where you never talk back to the teacher. But when I saw my children stand up for their marks in high school, having the confidence to talk to an adult respectfully and challenge, I think that was key. That 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 allowed them to develop as adults. To, to know that they could come with their own personality. They weren't reliant on their parents ad advocating for them in school. So I think that was also another key part. So there's just a few. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't know if this is a little bit too long to remember, but do you remember who Karina is like before becoming a mother and how being a mother changed you as a person? I think I've always had a parenting element to me. I'm the eldest of six kids and the eldest of 27 grandkids. So I think um, that part of it has always come naturally and being part of a large family. So that car that caring part, that um, nurturing part, 
I think I always wanted to be a mother because I wanted to pass along a lot of the values that I saw, you know, um, in my grandparents and my parents. Um, I think parenting, I, I think I was, I took a lot more risk before I became a parent. I think that'd be one significant way. So even though you're talking about me being, you know, this this parent with a lot of risk, I think the the person I was before was even more, took on even more chances. Um, uh, being a parent, I already thought on a long term dimension, like over generations. But being a parent just extended that like ten times. Just just the the length of time, mm-hmm. the way I think about the earth, the way I think about water, the way I think about, you know, climate and stuff like that. Uh, That's been a big part. Um, I didn't think I could have this much pride in somebody else. It it just like it, there is, and and I'm sure you see it already with Michelle. It's like, there aren't enough cells in your body, you know, to encompass the amount of love and joy, you know, even when they're behaving badly, <laughs> it's like, um, just, 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 um, it's just wonder. Um, and I, I, you know, I say this as a, as a biological parent, but I, I know so many others who are, uh, foster parents and aunts and uncles as well, who are able to have the same joy in, in my humans. <laughs> I'm really proud of them. What advice would you give to new moms like me who just started out a parenting journey and trying to navigate between like caretaking and work or creative projects? Okay. Uh, That's a really interesting question because um, when I had my first child, I was working in Morgan Stanley and uh, he came two weeks early. So I was actually at work at seven the previous night and I gave birth at 7 a.m. the next morning. Yeah, I didn't... uh, uh, anyway, long story. Um, I got really good advice from one of, uh, from a mother who, like, you know, six years ahead of me. And she said, you know, for us A-types, um, if you have the opportunity to nurse, nurse, because that is a moment of connection that um, that nobody else can have with this child. You know, so that, that was one, one piece of advice I got from her. And the other was, um, it's okay not to be doing other things, just to have this connection with this child. Um, Then past that, once I went back to work, because like I said, I was in New York, so I didn't have a very long maternity leave. um, I think I struggled really hard in that first year. And and ever since then, this is the piece of advice I give to first-time parents, first-time mothers, is, and maybe this goes back to your other story about, you know, like the question about what it was like to parent before. I think so much of me was work. So much of me was work. And, you know, uh, there was a component of me for my husband who had his own challenging and satisfying career. And then this child comes in and you're like, the 24 hours, I did not know how to carve them. When I carved those 24 hours, there was nothing like pretty much all of it was child. And then what was left was work. And then trying to find time for my husband and then trying to find time for myself within that I was still operating at the level that I was whilst I was pregnant or before I got married. You know, like my expectation of what I could deliver for myself at the level that I used to deliver it 
um, was at that, you know, th- that was my expectation for myself. And what I had to learn was how to deliver everything well, but not demand that perfection that I used to demand of myself before. Um, and so learning that that took a while for me to adjust my own internal pie of availability, if you like. Um, and I think if I had the choice, I'd do things slightly differently. Um, if I had to go back or what I now advise my nieces and, you know, who are having their first kids, same kind of thing. It's like, number one, knowing that this is going to happen is good because now you begin to understand this this weirdness that, that's going through you and this sense of never being enough. Because I think that's what I had, especially at the nine month mark was like, how comes I like I should have it together by now? And I didn't. Um, and just understanding that this is natural, that it's going to take time for me to redo like, you know, 30 years of my way of being when I was totally in control of my own time and now have to incorporate other people in it. It needs a reset. It needs a, a, a moment of, of evolving. And I wasn't there yet. So just knowing that that is going to come, I think is big and that you will, you will sort it out that you will be able to do these things. Um, it is within your wheelhouses, within your capacity. And then the other piece I got from an aunt many years later, uh, because my mother's an amazing cook, absolutely amazing cook. And I could never stand up to her in the kitchen. And so I always felt like I was throwing meals together at the last minute for my children. And she came in and my mother's mother was her mother-in-law. Um, she herself was the daughter of a really good cook. And so she was very similar minded to me. And she goes, it's your, it's your grandmother who told me this is the food that your children will remember. She says, so be the best parent you can be because you're the parent that they know. You don't have to be your mother. To me, hearing that was incredibly freeing because I think I was always trying to map to what my mother was. And I know to this day, I can't keep up with that. Um, But just understanding that I can set my own mark of what I want to be as a parent and, and keep trying to meet that or better that, that, that that's my aim. So I don't know if that is fair advice to you, Angie. Yeah. I remember you told me before Michelle was going to, to, to be with us very soon. And you told me that I don't have to worry about comparison because I'm the only, I'm the whole mothering experiences to her. And that was such an empowering and liberation for me. Yes. Yeah. So I'll, I'll pass that along to that aunt. <laughs> it was, it was her words of wisdom that, that I'm, I'm able to pass along. And it just, just that realization that you are, you are the parent, you know, you, you're the only mother she's ever going to have. And, you know, actually talking back to my son, Andrew, um, uh, and his DJing experience, I think that's one place I came out in the end was, um, you know, this whole conversation started in January and we were still having it in March. And um, I came to a point where he and I were having regular conversations and he was saying, okay, I've spoken to this person about this. I've spoken to this person about that. And I realized at that moment And I said it to him, I said, you know what, you've shown me that you have a good board of advisors, that you know how to go out and ask and investigate and assess, like he was talking to people about, how do you make a living as a DJ? Can you be a producer? You know, do you need like, uh, you know, should this be a side gig or should it be my main event? Um, And I said, you've gathered a good group of people to give you advice. So I'm going to be the one thing that nobody else can be. I'm going to be your mother. 
And, you know, that's what I'm here for. So the role that nobody else can play. Thank you so much. This is, I, I am so grateful to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you. We are coming to the end of this interview. Could you share with the audience what other current projects you're working on and where can they find you? Uh, sure. I think the easiest place to find me is on Substack. I have a tiltthefuture.substack. Um, I also have a website, KarinaDeSouza.com, which is not getting updated as fast as the Tilt the Future um, website. They're supposed to be in sync, but they will be one day soon. Um, the other big project, of course, is, is completing the Ripples book. My commitment is to get it under the tree this year for my children, my three children. Um, nice. And I'm always available to do presentations on either climate or um, future of work. Uh, just recently moderated a panel on mental health for young workers, which is really interesting. So hopefully that'll make one of the future um, Substack uh, editions. Um, yeah, just, I, I really enjoy writing. I enjoy engaging with people. I think it's been uh, one thing I'm always looking for in the circle of friends that I create is inquisitive minds. And you and Paul are two of those and the whole community of Rite of Passage and everybody else. And we're learning to, to uh, do photography together so nice i will put uh, the links to karina's website and substack twitter in the show no yeah and the book yeah of course the book i should quickly i probably explain that one because a lot of people say contours of courageous parenting and say it's not for me it's actually about decision making it's about how we make decisions how we it breaks down the decision making process so it is actually a book for everyone but especially if you're a parent how do you how do you give that skill to your children uh, so that they aren't suddenly, you know, 21 and having to make the first major decision of their lives. How do they actually evolve into that process? So that's what that's about. Yeah, be sure to check out. Thank you so much, Karina. Thank you, Angie. Thank you for having me. 